Thank you, Peter, for your very kind words. It's an absolute pure pleasure to be here with you. Meeting God's people is one of the greatest joys I have. All through my 50-year ministry, uh, I've been a bridge builder, build bridges across the people of God in, in, across the different churches. Uh, and that's how I started 50 years ago, and that's how I want to continue because there's only one body, one Lord and one body. And of course, we are called to be in different churches. We've got to be faithful, support the church, but we're part of a bigger church, the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, now before I bring my message to you, and I'm always every week deeply exercised as to what in different, different places, sometimes there's a particular message that the Lord lays on your heart, sometimes there's different messages in different places. As Peter has mentioned, for the last seven years, I've been itinerating and uh, ministering in different places. All right, now, before I bring my message to you, uh, uh, as after I handed the church over to my successor, I was very keen on writing, so I got as far as writing at least one book. <laughs> it's called Dare to Be a Disciple, what I've learned about what makes for an authentic disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with the permission of some of your leadership, I brought some copies, and they're available uh, at the front over there if you're interested in that. All right, now for my message today. My message is, we are a people of influence. Turn to the person next to you and say, you have influence. And let them say to you, you have you have influence. I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me uh, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Probably the most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to read these verses from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the, if the salt loses its uh, saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on, a, on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, as I study the Word of God every day, what impresses me is the Bible, in, uh, in, the Bible teaches us the profoundest of truths, truths in the simplest of language. Jesus marries profundity with simplicity. It's one thing to know a truth for yourself. It's another thing to be able to communicate it to others. And Jesus chose words which anyone can understand what he was talking about. He didn't confuse people with profound things spoken in such an abstract way that ordinary people couldn't understand. 
So when he wanted to teach us the importance of the Word of God, he talked about a language they understood. A sower sowing a seed. Likens the seed to the Word of God and, uh, and, and the soil to our hearts and the different conditions and so forth. So when he uses this particular metaphor, two, two images that he gives to us, he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt and light you find in every household, rich or poor. He takes these two things that's found in every house, and those two things are a picture of influence. Salt is an influence. Light is an influence. Salt, of course, in the days before refrigeration, salt was used as a preservative. That's how they preserved meat. Without it, it would, of course, deteriorate. So salt acted as a preservative. So when we function as a salt, we Christians are a preservative of society. Sin causes deterioration, not only in the individual, but a nation and the nations of the world. For that, please read Romans chapter 1. When we don't give God his rightful place, it sets a downward spiral. And you will, won't find a more terrible list of, of the negative influence and the impact it has on society than Romans chapter 1, the last part of Romans chapter 1 where we don't give God his rightful place. So salt acts as, a, salt acts as a, something that retards corruption. It may not entirely check it, but it acts as a break on the process of corruption. Light is an influence. Light overcomes darkness. And you can read again again the scriptures, read John's gospel, you'll see it straight away. It, you know, it uses light in a moral, spiritual sense. Jesus was the light of the world. So he is the Lord saying, you are the salt. You. Who was he speaking to? Of course there was a multitude, but his first audience were his disciples. So these words are addressed to his disciples and of course potential disciples in the future. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, both individually and collectively. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And brothers and sisters, my challenge to you, as I challenge myself, by, because I'm in the pew, pulpit and in the pew. Every word I'm speaking to you, I address myself. The question we, I want us to address is, how can I increase my Christian influence? How can I increase that? It doesn't take too long to memorize the, the phrases and says, uh, you know, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's the easy part. The challenging part is, how does that operate in our lives? How do we, uh, what, what sort of decreases, uh, diminishes our influences, influence, what increases our influence? That's a good question for each one of us to ask. And you know something? If you become a Christian, you can be an influence for good for the rest of your life. Can you say amen to that? Amen. There never comes a time when you retire from being an influ influencer. It's a new word that's coming now that talk about influencers. 
ERS. There never comes a time when we stop being an influence. So some people will have little influence. Other people will have a great influence. Some people will have an influence for good. Others will have an influence for evil. And we're in this battle. For which influence will prevail? Influence for good or influence for evil? I don't think it probably quite registered in the lives of the disciples as he was speaking to them until probably many years afterwards. The, uh, notice what he says there, and notice the scope of that influence. These people were brought up in a slip of a country called Palestine. It was, you know, a, a very small part of the Roman Empire. Most people hadn't traveled too far away from where they lived. And notice the words that the Lord says. He doesn't say you are the salt of Palestine or the light of Palestine. The Lord was looking beyond that to the disciples that would come in subsequent centuries. And he's saying, and notice, do not reduce the scope of it. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It would have probably registered with them. The scope of influence he was giving to his church. On the day of, you know, on, before, before the day of Pentecost, before his ascension, he says, you know, this gospel of the kingdom is going to go from where? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. It's reached New Zealand with the uttermost part of the earth from Jerusalem. That was meant to be the scope of the influence through disciples of the, of the first century and the subsequent disciples. And please notice this too. Not just the salt of the church or the light of the church. It's the salt of, of what's outside the church as well as in the church. For too many have confined their influence within the four walls of the church. That influence is meant to go out. All right, so if we're going to, if we're going to in, increase, uh, increase that influence that we, we have, uh, salt has to be engaged with meat. Light has to engage with darkness. You cannot have influence without engagement. If the salt doesn't engage with the meat... It can remain in the salt shaker. And the light can be in the torch that's not lit up. So you see, we have to engage. And where I believe the church has lost its influence is because it's restricted the sphere in which that influence was meant to be exerted. This is the God's world. This is His planet. Righteousness will prevail on planet Earth. It has commenced. It will continue and one day it will be consummated. Because the scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. His kingdom has been inaugurated. His kingdom is advancing. And when the Lord comes back a second time, his kingdom will be consummated. 
the fullness of his kingdom would have come. And the challenge for us is to be engaged. So how, how can this, how, how to be salt of the earth? Let me just quickly, pass. I'm going to go with this first. First, be a committed Christian, not a nominal Christian. You won't have any influence if you're just a nominal Christian. As a matter of fact, you'll bring disrepute on the name of the Lord if you just call yourself a Christian, but you're not a committed Christian. And there are thousands of nominal Christians. They're like salt shakers that have got a label salt on it, but it's absolutely empty. They're a torch without a battery. Simply a label and nothing else. Those who are lukewarm Christians... Have you noticed the, the Lord's severest words are against lukewarm Christians? Please, for the sake of time, we don't have time to go to read Revelation 3 to the Laodicean church who were very wealthy, increased with goods, and they came to a place where they felt, we don't need anything. And what does the Lord say to the Laodicean church? You're poor, blind, naked, wretched. These are a whole string of very, very strong words. He tells them to buy, you know, gold tried in the fire, not natural gold. It's faith. White raiment, purity and holiness. Eyes have vision to see beyond the natural. That's what he, that was the remedy he provided them. The Lord always diagnoses the con condition not to condemn us, that we would move from there to the prescription he provides for us that we might be people who would make a difference. Thirdly, if we're going to have influence, we have to let the Lord sanctify ourselves. Our lifestyle must change if you are going to have influence. Our lips, what comes out of our lips, must be backed by our lifestyle. Now, none of us are perfected, but our life must speak as much as our lips, if not more. Because our actions speak louder than our words. What we are speak louder than our words. Have you noticed the world places a lot of emphasis on charisma and very little on character? How you come across TV, uh, uh, you know, if you're charismatic in that sense, not in the sense we use it, charismatic means empowered by the Spirit. So we've got to let the Lord sanctify us. That's why even talking about our speech, our speech has to be seasoned with salt. All right, a couple of other ones before we move on from there. If we're going to be people of influence, we must grow in maturity. Infants don't have too much influence except over their parents. But you expect those children to grow up. And as they grow up, our influence increases. But you know what has diminished our influence? Wrong teaching has seriously diminished the influence of the church. There's so many Christians, there are so many Christians who simply, you know, uh, they look at the world, they see it's getting, you know, worse and worse, or, uh, you know, the news Look at the news at any day, either in the Dominion Post or on TV. 
most of the time is hid by some negative news. Good news don't make it to those places. I've seen that over and over again. Or very, in a very limited way, in the back page hidden somewhere, not the front pages. So wrong teaching has. So if we're in the place where we simply resign, it's going to get worse and worse, and the only thing that will save us is the coming of Christ, that's a half-truth. God's kingdom will be fully ushered in when the Lord comes, but He tells us to occupy till He comes. Not simply wait in a waiting room, just waiting for it to happen. It's a time to be fully engaged. Every day. Lord, I want to exercise influence for good in your name and for your glory. So he speaks about light. We'll pass on from that. Jesus himself called himself the light of the world. Then he turns around here in this, in, in this particular portion and says, you are the light of the world. If you, if, if, if you receive me, then you will enlighten this world. I want you to come with me to John's gospel, to the Lord's high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. Just a short while before his crucifixion, the Lord prays for his disciples. And I want you to particularly focus on verse 13 to, to, verse, to, to verse 19. I am coming to you now, but I say these things, Jesus is talking to his heavenly Father, while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. They, his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world. Please note this theology in three prepositions. Three prepositions. He says here, he goes on to say, Therefore they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Here, here are the three prepositions that I want you to particularly take note of. The first one is not of the world. We're not of the world. Or no, perhaps we should say, not, uh, don't take them out of the world. Don't remove them from this planet. Keep them here. Lord, protect them, but keep them here. It's a good question to ask ourselves. When we've received Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, why doesn't he take us up to heaven immediately at that point? Why does he take us out of planet Earth? Because he has a purpose for us here. And that purpose I mentioned in the next two prepositions. First of all, don't take them out of the world. Don't separate them geographically from this planet. What does he say then? 
of, from the people of this world. The world is used in the Bible in different senses. World is the planet, world is the people, peop, all people. But the second one is, it says, but, but he says, I am not of the world, and his disciples are not of the world. What did he mean by not of the world? He means, means this, their worldview, their lifestyle is very, very, very different from the people in the world. And if it's not, you're salt that's lost, losing its savor. You're a light whose brightness is dimming. Not take them out of the world or away from people who are non-Christians, but you cannot embrace their lifestyle. Your lifestyle has to be different, otherwise you don't have any salt in you, you don't have light in you. Our lifestyle has to be different. So I've been preaching a lot on the message of holiness. We haven't presented holiness in a very beautiful, attractive way. It's been too doer. It's been too, uh, uh, you know, uninteresting. Lacking in technicolor. Too monochrome. Not beautifully presented. Not making it a beautiful quality when it's worshiping the beauty of holiness. It's an attractive quality. But we've made it unattractive. But without holiness, we don't have much impact in the world. If our lifestyle is not different, if our thinking is not different, that's why our mind has to be renewed. Day by day, it's got to be renewed. You may be born again, but if our thinking is not renewed, you will simply be a very worldly Christian. Our mind has to be renewed. And the mind has tremendous impact on our conduct. It must be changed. So not of the world, it means not, of the, not embracing the worldview or the lifestyle of this world. But please notice the third part. As my Father sent me into the world, I send you into the world. What is that? Mission. There is you know, God has called us to maturity. God has called us to sanctification. God has called us to growth. God has called us because there's a mission for us to accomplish. Hallelujah. That mission, of course, started in Jerusalem and got to the ends of the earth. And what does he say before his second coming? The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations for a witness. Then the end will come. Because the only thing that can transform the peoples of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you say an amen to that? Hallelujah. That's the only thing that can really change this world. But you see, the effect of the gospel is not only bringing people to know the Lord. That is the beginning. The saving of souls is of most important. But Jesus said that, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? But this is also God's earth, which has been spoiled by humans. And God's in the process of recovering it. And he wants to give us impact on every sphere of society. I'm sure you've, you've heard, uh, you know, 
the sphere of society is put in terms of, of, of different spheres of society, business, family, law, government, sports and recreation, different spheres of society. And of course, in your church, Bruce, and others in the area of business, they made impact in those areas. But there are other areas too. There's areas, the one that I'm passionate about is the area of government. So I want to speak very briefly about, about this area of influence in the place of government. God began to speak to me about this about uh, over 30, 40 years ago. 30 or 40 years ago. There wasn't much te teaching in this area. If you mention the word politics, there was only one adjective to describe it. Dirty. When you say Jesus is Lord, do you know you're making a political statement? He is king. Politics means the art or the science of government. Jesus, what was written on the top when he was crucified? The king of the Jews. What does Revelation chapter uh, 11 says? The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of of the Lord and His Christ. God called people to have influence in this sphere. What's his name? Uh, uh, you know, Nehemiah had influence in this sphere. Joseph had influence in this sphere. Daniel had influence in this sphere. Mordecai had influence in this sphere. Esther had influence in this sphere. So what I want to share br briefly with you is uh, as the Lord began to speak to me, uh, and I'm very, very careful in this. Uh, please, uh, uh, let me say this right front. I never tell people who to vote for. I never do that. That's a personal thing. In any church, there may be Christians that might support one party or another party. That's theirs. I teach them the principles from the Word of God they must make the application. And when I was, you know, I was asking the Lord to bring understanding, I read some, uh, so what some of the godly men who, uh, you know, whom people receive as great men and women of God. As Billy Graham is in the field of, uh, in the field of, uh, of, uh, of, of evangelism, John Stott is one of the great men, uh, was one of the great men when it came to the teaching of the Word of God. This man was based in uh, Langham Place uh, in, uh, in Oxford Street in London. I visited that church a few times. And uh, amazingly, God made way for me to meet John Stott, which was a great privilege. And this man, who's had profound influence in the world, you know, says, John Stott says, it is no good saying that Jesus and his apostles were not interested in politics, and that they neither required nor even commended political action, let alone engage in it themselves, it is true they did not. But we have to remember that they were a tiny, insignificant minority under the totalitarian regime of Rome. The legions were everywhere uh, and were under orders to suppress dissent. 
crush opposition and preserve the status quo. The first Christians could not take political action. Is that the reason why they did not? At least the fact that they did not because they could not is no reason why we should not if we can. Then he goes on to say, for without political action, appropriate political action, some needs simply cannot be met. The apostles did not demand the abolition of slavery, but are we not glad and proud that the 19th century Christians did? Their campaign was based on the Bible teaching regarding human dignity and was a legitimate extrapolation from it. The apostles did not build hospitals, neither require them to be built, but Christian hospitals are a legitimate extrapolation from Jesus' compassionate concern for the sake. Just so, political action, which is love-seeking justice for the oppressed, is legitimate extrapolation from the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. Would you please turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Rome, uh, uh, Romans, uh, the Gospel, the Epistle? where the gospel is mentioned. That's what I was running ahead of myself. But this is probably the most systematic presentation of the gospel you'll find in the Bible. And of course, he introduced the gospel in chapter 1. And then up to chapter 8, and then you know, it continues further on up to chapter, chapter 11, is the exposition of the gospel, speaking both of how we are put right with God and how God sanctifies us. But do you know that this is the same book that speaks about government? There's no, even though it's limited to only seven verses, there's no uh, uh, longer teaching on the role of government than Romans chapter 13. So would you turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 13? Romans 13. And, and reading from verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. All authority comes from God. Can you say an amen to that? Jesus, before his ascension, says all authority in heaven and in earth, heaven and in earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore. Hallelujah. Our going is based on, on the fact that he's got all authority. Hallelujah. So he says, you know, so there's no authority except that God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do still will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but, those, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority, would you please mark this, is God's servant. For your good. If, you were, if you're the wrong, be not afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are, again, second time, God's servant. Agents of wrath bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes for the authorities for the third time God's servants. Give to everyone what you owe to them. Those taxes, taxes. Everyone, revenue, revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, honor. The point I'm making is 
God is the source of all authority. He delegates authority. He delegates it to governments. He delegates it to parents. As two examples of delegated authority. They're never given a blank check. They'll be held accountable to God, whether at the present time they acknowledge him or not. But the point I do want to make is, when Paul wrote Romans 13, there would be probably no or very few Christians in government. And yet the Lord, he says three times, they are God's servants. Our picture of a God's servant is Romans chapter 1. Just turn with me to that and I'll show you. That the word servant of God is used in two senses and we need to understand this. Okay, Romans, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. So a servant is a person who knows Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and who is doing what we might call church type of work. That's one type of servant. And he might be a Christian working in, uh, in different places. He is a servant of God in that sense, but he knows the Lord. But when it uses in Romans chapter, chap, chapter 13, they are not servants necessarily because they know the Lord. They are servants because they're fulfilling a God-ordained function. Please hear me very carefully. The function is governing. That is a God-ordained function. When they fulfill that function... They are acting as God's servants. They're acting as God's servants. The reason why I'm saying this is, brothers and sisters, unless have a, we have a biblical understanding of this, you know what has happened? The evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal churches, we had neglected that area. And because of that, when Hamans are in power, bad legislation prevails. And when bad legislation prevails, it has a detrimental effect on the whole of society. Read, please read the book of Esther. But when Mordecai's are in power, good legislation prevails. Because, you know, the parliament has the highest authority in the land. Speaking from a human perspective, they make laws. Now, my degree, when I went to university, I studied economics, I studied law, and I studied accounting. My first love was law. My second love was economics. My third love was accounting. I leave it to others who are better at figuring things out. All right. But here's my point. You know, legislation. Statute is the highest form of law. There's common law, statute law. But you see, because their authority is a derived authority... God says Christians ought to pay taxes. Christians ought to give them respect. It doesn't mean to say we serve our. No, the church has a prophetic voice. When they do wrong, we respectfully tell them where they're doing wrong. Hallelujah. When they're doing right, we support them. How many of you are glad you're living in a country like New Zealand that is a democratic country? What a privilege it is. And you know, New Zealand is one of the least corrupt countries in the world. We are very, very privileged. Hallelujah. When you look at other countries in the world, tremendous devastation, all kinds, exportation of power and all the rest of it, we are very blessed. So, it, so we are citizens. I'm uh, combining a whole lot of things. We have dual, every Christian has dual citizenship. Did you know that? We are citizens of heaven, Philippians chapter 3. 
but we're also citizens of New Zealand. Others might be of states or wherever they come from. We have dual citizenship. Where is that said? The Apostle Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship. Hallelujah. So there's certain responsibilities on us, us as, citizen, as citizens. So what are our major responsibilities? All right, please read Romans 13. You'll see some of them there. But you see, you won't find voting in there, but it is a legitimate extension of the responsibilities that we have. Did you know in the election before last, one million people who were eligible to vote did not vote? One million. So I extrapolated the figures. In the last census, 44% of the people said that they were Christians on the form. Now we realize quite a few would have been nominal Christians. But if you take the 44% and apply it to the million, 440,000 probable Christians did not vote. Even if you reduce that to a quarter million. How much influence we lost because we didn't exercise this privilege and the responsibility we have before God. All right, my time is just about up. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and I'll soon wind this up. 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us to pray. And the first group of people that are mentioned to pray for are pray for those that are in authority. Pray for those that are in authority. And I would have to say, there's many churches that never pray for those that are in authority. They pray for all other needs. That's what led me in uh, 20 years ago to start prayer at Parliament. So we call the churches together. And now for the last 20 years, three times a year, March, June, and September, I get the body of Christ together and uh, we've pretty well filled the place, the grand hall. And you've got people here, you know, Bruce and Jeanette come, and others, I'm sure, that come, come to this meeting. They come from 14 different denominations, not just from the Wellington region, from Wyrapple, Levin, Palmerston North, Auckland, Christchurch, and from many other places. And when we get there, we sing every verse of the national anthem because we've got the best national anthem in the whole world. It's a song in prayer. And then we teach people how to pray for those that are in authority. I get Christian doctors. I get uh, uh, Christian judges. At least one. And uh, uh, a Christian policeman, a former commissioner of police to make an input there for 10 minutes. Then we get together in groups of five, groups of five and we pray. And you want to see the concert, the, the grand hall filled with the praises of God. And we turn the seat of power into an altar of prayer and praise. Every Wednesday, I would meet with Christian MPs. They, they can come from any, any party, but it's for Christians. They leave the politics at the door. We meet as Christians. We share simple breakfast. We share from the Word. And we pray together for their needs. So I'm like an unofficial chaplain to Christian members of Parliament. This year, we launched what we call AMPP, Adopt Members of Parliament for Prayer. Where a person who joins this, it's all on our website, Prayer at Parliament website, or you can talk to Bruce and Jeanette and they can tell you about this. Where, uh, where you know, 
I've divided New Zealand into six prayer provinces, six or seven prayer provinces with a prayer promoter on it. And anybody who join, wants to join that, they pray for their own electorate MP and they pray for one list MP. So every, all the 120 MPs are prayed for by Christians throughout New Zealand for the whole term of parliament. Now, I don't know if there's any other country in the world that has started something like that. We have influence. Our area of service or passion might differ, but brothers and sisters, it's in the world of business, in the schools, in the law courts, in government, we can make a difference. And God has called us to make a world of difference. Let's pray. Father, you have made us salt and light of the earth and the world. You have given us influence. Help each one of us to take up this challenge seriously as to how we can increase our influence. Lord, in the world round about us, right here in Upper Heart, then, and Lord, in the Heart Valley, and then a city and beyond, dear Father. Help us to increase our influence that it might bring you honor and glory that our Father might be glorified. Please, brothers and sisters, take up this challenge. Read those scriptures. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you have a need, please just lift your hand up. The key to answered prayer is Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. If you need healing, would you please lift your hand up? Just lift your hand up. Thank you. If you have a financial need, would you please lift your hand up? If you have a job need, would you please lift your hand up? If you have a family need, would you please lift your hand up? If you have a need that uh, I haven't mentioned, but it is an important, a serious need, would you please lift your hand up? Now, brothers and sisters, God is our Heavenly Father. He tells us to pray through Jesus, give us this day our daily bread, whether that bread is actual literal food or financial provision or health or a job need. They're all included in that particular portion of the Lord's Prayer. So stand believing. Now just believe together. Stand in faith and pray. And I'm praying some of those answers. Expect them, the answers to come immediately. But not all answers come immediately. God may be doing something in us or preparing circumstances. So whatever the time it be, stand in faith until the answer comes. But you must stay on the plane of faith and not in sight. Father, I bring all this request to you, Lord. You know each one of them by name, and you love them unreservedly, O oh God. Now, Father, you taught us through Jesus Christ to pray that, Lord, to pray for our daily provision. We ask you for the provision of, of health, of finance, Lord, of job needs, of family needs, of other needs, O oh God. Meet those needs, Lord. We can only appropriate by faith, Lord. Help us to start appropriating from today and to ask you if there's things in us that need adjusting before the answer comes, Lord, that you might do something in us, that you might do something for us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Could we stand as I hand the meeting back? And to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, would you please give him a great clap offering as we bring this service to a close. P.S. If you're interested in this, it's at the door. Thank you.